church as a sign of his forgiveness and his kindness, his tenderness and mercy toward us, God put the symbol of a bow in the heavens. In the language of the Old Testament, it does not say rainbow. It's an English word. It says God put his bow in the heavens. What is a bow? It's a weapon. It's a sign of force. It's a sign of violence. But God puts a sign of his divine power, his divine bow, arcing over heaven and earth, now as a sign of peace and kindness toward the human race. It's a sign of his covenant. Covenant is a word that we use in church from time to time. You'll be hard-pressed to find it in a newspaper article, in a magazine. It's a word that sticks pretty closely uh, to our language as Christians in the language of the Bible. As Americans, more often than not, we speak and act in the language of contracts. A contract and a covenant are such different things. Similar, but quite different in nature. A contract... If you have a credit card, you have a contract with your credit card company. It's a quid pro quo deal. They give you the right to buy things, you pay them back every month, and everybody's happy. You do this for me, I'll do this for you. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. The the, uh, language of commerce, the language of buying and selling, it is all contractual. When it comes to your closest relationships, however, if you operate in a contractual way, you will not be happy for long. I will be decent to you as long as you're decent to me. I will be happy with you as long as you're in a good mood with me. I will make you dinner as long as you make me dinner the night before. (laughs) No relationship flourishes under those kind of circumstances. A covenant is reserved for true relationships. A covenant is a promise, but it's a very special kind of a promise. A covenant is a promise to be with someone else no matter what happens. And that is what is going on in the early chapters of Genesis. God is promising to be with the human race no matter what comes next, no matter how bad we get, no matter how difficult our sin is to deal with. In 2018, the most commonplace, humanly speaking, that you can find a covenant is when you go to a wedding. In most marriages still these days, covenant vows are made between partners. At my own wedding, I said something like this. I, Greg, take you, Sarah, to be my wife, to have and to hold from this day forward. We did the traditional traditional vows. Here's the covenantal part. For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish as long as we both shall live. To this I pledge myself truly with all my heart. There is nothing conditional about those vows, right? We don't say for better or else, for richer or we're finished, in health or I'll lose my patience. We pledge both things when we give our lives to another person in the covenant of marriage. 
we promise that we will be together come what may. No matter how high the highs are, no matter how low the lows are, I am with you. It would make the case that in making promises like that, we as human beings are at our noblest and at our best. In the book of Genesis, the words we heard, this is the nature of what God promises to the whole human family. God says, I am with you people, no matter what. No matter how high the highs, no matter how low the lows, come what may, I, the Lord your God, will be with you. It takes some faith to believe that. But that's why we're here this morning. The main part of the sermon is going to uh, meditate on the gospel reading, which is Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 15. In this gospel reading, you will, we will see in the life of Jesus Christ that God is with him in the highest of highs and that God the Father is with him in the lowest of lows and that insofar as our lives are connected to the life of Christ, the same will be true for us, that God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit will commune with us, will abide with us no matter how high our highs are right now, no matter how lows our low are. Mark chapter 1 says this. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love with you I am well pleased. This is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And the first thing that the Gospel of Mark records that our Lord and Savior does is to go out into the wilderness to the banks of the Jordan River and be baptized by his cousin, John the Baptist. This seems to me, 2,000 years later, a very curious way to begin. Number one. Jesus goes out into the wilderness. If you remember all the way back to the beginning of Genesis, the story of the human race begins where? In a garden of Eden, in a beautiful place, in a place that is blessed by the presence of God where everything is flourishing. The biblical story starts in a garden. Where does Jesus' ministry start? Not in a garden, not in a beautiful place, not in a place of green flourishing. Jesus' uh, gospel career starts in the wilderness, a barren place, a desolate place, a dry and a weary land where there is no water. Jesus came to meet people like us. Thousands of years after sin had been introduced into the world, Jesus comes not to a beautiful place. Jesus comes to the dusty, desolate place, to the wilderness. Now, in this wilderness, there was some genuine excitement over what God was doing 2,000 years ago. If you read a little earlier in the Gospel of Mark, John the Baptist is 
sharing a baptism of repentance, and people are flocking out to see him, like the city of Jerusalem, nearby towns and villages. They are all making the journey of dozens of miles into this dry and dusty place, packing liters and liters and gallons and gallons of water just so they don't die to get there, going down into the stream of the Jordan and being baptized. And John says, this is a baptism of repentance, of changing your mind, of turning your direction. Something new is about to happen, people. The Gospel of Mark says everyone was coming. Probably not literally everyone was coming, but in the same way that we would say, everybody's watching the Olympics now. Right? The Olympics are going on. Everybody knows this. Everybody knew about John the Baptist and was interested in what's going on there. Now, Jesus himself joins in with everybody and allows himself to be baptized with a baptism of repentance by his cousin, his predecessor, his forerunner, John the Baptist. Why would Jesus need to be baptized? He never sinned. Did he need to change his mind? Did he need to change his ways? What a curious thing to do. I think there's two things going on here. Jesus, from the very beginning of his public ministry, is saying to everybody, us included, I identify with you. I know how it is for you guys. There's sin. And as a people, we need to turn. And I have come to enter into that. Even though he is without sin, Jesus came to enter in and identify with us. Secondly, Jesus is about 30 years old at this point. Jesus is 100% divine, no doubt. He is also 100% human. In his humanity, at what age did Jesus really understand and figure out how to be the Messiah? I'm not trying to be irreverent in asking this question. I'm just saying, once Jesus was a 14-year-old kid, in his humanity, do you think Jesus totally saw it? How to be the Messiah at that point? Did God teach him? Did God instruct him? Did God, in his humanity, reveal himself in deeper and increasing ways as he grew up into adulthood? The book of Hebrews says that Jesus learned obedience. I don't know exactly how this works out. I do know that we don't know very much about Jesus' life and times until he was a 30-year-old man. And the first thing he did in public was to allow himself to be baptized because his life was about to take a giant turning. Jesus went from an unknown to being the leading rabbi in Israel. Jesus went from, who is this guy? To being known as the Messiah and eventually the king of the Jews. This moment is a significant turning. This is what repentance means, a significant turning in his own life. Do you think for Jesus this was an incredible high? Or tinged with struggle, difficulty, and low. I'm suspicious that it was with a lump in his throat that Jesus began his public ministry. 
By the time he was 30, Jesus did know what it meant to be the Messiah. He did know from day one what perfect obedience to the Father would entail. At this moment, God the Father sends him a tremendous sign of encouragement that God is with him all the way. As Jesus breaks the surface of the water of baptism in the Jordan River, heaven is torn open. It's a very violent verb here in Greek. I mean, the way you would rip apart a shirt or a piece of clothing. As Jesus splits open the surface of the water, God the Father splits open the clouds of heaven. And the gospel says that the presence of the Holy Spirit came This is a curious translation. It says, descending on him like a dove. The Greek language says, literally, descended into him. Now, Greek only has one word for into, just like our language. It says into in the Gospel of Mark. Much later, uh, Greek manuscripts have the word descended on. Because it's such a weird thing to say the Holy Spirit descended into him like a dove. Mark doesn't say there was an actual dove. It says that the presence came down like a dove. It didn't swoop down like an eagle or a hawk. It gently, slowly came down into Christ. So in this moment, heaven is torn, the surface of the water is torn, and the Spirit joins heaven and earth, and Jesus himself is filled up with the presence of the Spirit. This is about as high of a biblical high as there can be. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit embracing, dancing, joining together, even though Jesus might have a lump in his throat over what's ahead, God sends him this tremendous encouragement that he is going to be with his son every step of the way. Now that this moment has happened, this incredible spiritual high, Jesus is ready to go, right? So what's going to happen next? Like something awesome, wouldn't you think? I mean, the whole city of Jerusalem was flocking to see John the Baptist. What's going to happen now that Jesus starts his ministry? (laughs) The next thing that happens, at once, says the Gospel of Mark, at once the spirit that came on him like a dove ejected him, sent him out further into the wilderness. What? And Jesus was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with wild animals. And angels attended him. From this immediate high to an immediate low, sent out, thrown out, ejected into the wilderness, a dry and weary land where there is no water. I mean, this is a place... People still exist in the wilderness of Judea, but it is a hard, scrabble existence. You better have a plan to keep yourself alive, to carry water, to know where the water sources are. Jesus is there for a good long season, 40 days and 40 nights. 
is God going to be present with him in the wilderness? When he's there for this long season, just to highlight how difficult it is, Satan himself makes himself available to the newly commissioned Messiah. Now, in Judaism 2,000 years ago, they held that the wilderness was the place of dark spirits and demons. Jesus himself, as the anointed son of God, doesn't just get tempted and tested by your run-of-the-mill demon. Satan himself, as the prince of darkness, comes to Jesus to try to take him down even before he can get started. The Gospel of Mark doesn't list the particular temptations. Gospel of Mark doesn't say the temptations all happened at the end of the 40 days. Gospel of Mark makes it seem like Jesus went through a long, dry season where temptation and trial was what was his daily food. Have you been there? Have you been through a time where it seemed like, oh, it's dry, it's dusty, I'm tempted to do the wrong thing every waking second? Jesus knows what this is all about. God's people have always known what this was all about. Abraham, Father Abraham, spent time in the desert. Father Isaac, time in the desert. Great-great-granddaddy Jacob, time in the desert. Moses, 40 years in the desert tending sheep. And then another 40 years in the desert shepherding the people of Israel. King David had to hide out for years in the desert. God's people, decades and decades in exile in the proverbial desert. Jesus himself in the desert. If you are there right now, brother or sister, you are not alone. You're not the first one. You are not the last one. And even though it may seem desperately ooh, parched and challenging for your survival, even though it may not seem like God is nearby, God is in the wilderness. And notice that even though Satan's there, even though wild animals, and we're talking lions, tigers, and bears here, not, you know, gentle deer. Even though there are wild animals that would threaten the lives, God sends his angels. God sends his messengers. God sends signs of his care and companionship. And God lets his son know, even though this is a hard, hard season, I am with you. In the low, I am with you, and I am not going to let you go. You can call it the dark night of the soul. You can call it having a faith walk. You can have it just having a bad season. You can call it the wilderness. The presence of the Lord is there for you. It will be there for you. Jesus emerges from this wilderness 40 days later. He emerges stronger he emerges more confident. He emerges, if he, this is possible, even 
more clear and pure that God's presence is on him and into him through the Holy Spirit, Jesus now knows how to be the Messiah, and he starts preaching like God's Messiah ought to preach. This passage ends this way. After John was put into prison, Jesus went into Galilee, and he started proclaiming the good news of God. Here's Jesus' first sermon. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God, it's coming near. Repent, everybody, and believe the good news. Now, there's a short little phrase here that gets at another low in the life of Jesus Christ, which was his cousin, John the Baptist, was put into prison. I mean, they were relatives. John was his predecessor, his forerunner. Herod, King Herod, the political power of the day, puts John in prison. Now, if Jesus' warm-up act went to prison, what do you think is going to happen to Jesus himself once he comes on the scene? The forecast is not good. John is in prison in Jerusalem. Jesus, knowing what's what, starts preaching not in Jerusalem, but far away in the north in Galilee. It is not his time yet. Jesus starts preaching far away from Herod. Here's a sermon. People, now is the time. In the Greek language, there are two ways of keeping track of time. One is called chronos time, chronological time. You just keep track of the days and the minutes, keeping time. This is not what Jesus is talking about here. He uses the word kairos, Kairos time is when you have a sense of building inside, like now is the time, now is the moment. It's like what an Olympic skier feels before they lay down the best downhill run they've ever done. That feeling that they have in the shoot of like, oh yeah, it's time. This is what Jesus is saying. We've been waiting for years as God's people, and this is it. This is the moment. And then Jesus says, this is what the moment has, a coming kingdom. Jesus doesn't say, I've got a plan. Jesus doesn't say, I've got a program for y'all. Jesus doesn't say, I've got something new politically that's going to change everything. Jesus says, I've got a kingdom I want to tell you about. Jesus is introducing a kingdom a way of being, a way of living, and at the center of a kingdom is a king who sets the tone for how life is going to be for everybody in the kingdom. Jesus will later introduce himself as that very king. And then very short, succinct directions for everybody who's listening. Repent. Turn from the way you're going, the way you think it's supposed to be, your preferred way, what you thought could be the best of all possible outcomes. Turn from that and turn toward me and believe what I'm telling you. This is the time. During the 40 days of Lent, this is exactly the invitation that year after year the church holds in front of us. Turn from whatever it is that you're so focused on 
and turn toward the example of Jesus. Get obsessed with the teaching, with the life, with the death, with the resurrection of Jesus during this day. Pay attention. Now could be our moment. Even in 2018, now could be your time where something genuine happens for all of us. Quite frankly, in our American society right now, isn't there some kind of longing for a turning? I mean, just this week, there was yet another school shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas School. How many stories like this have we heard in the last 20 years? I'll tell you, hundreds. Hundreds of stories like this that we have heard. There's something in me every time, even though I confess my own sympathy is getting beaten down and tired. I don't care as much as I did 20 years ago the first time I heard about Columbine. I don't. Maybe God is inviting us as a people, collectively, to turn away from the things that are making us so very angry so very lonely, so very destructive. I mean, there's something in me personally that that's true for, but we need to turn together. Mercy, don't we need to turn together? Because we are in, we are in somewhat of a low But we are not so low that God can't find us, that the gospel of Jesus Christ cannot wrap us up and turn us around. I'm going to conclude um, with the New Testament reading. It is one of the most difficult to understand passages in the entire Bible. I would need an hour to lay before you the three kind of competing views to how to understand this passage. I'm not going to do that this morning because we don't have time. I'll say just a couple things. This is from uh, the letter, 1 Peter chapter 3. Christ suffered. He also suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. Okay? You hear the resonance? To bring you to God no matter how low you are. This is why Christ suffered. To bring you to God. He was put to death in the body and then made alive in the spirit. And here's the weird part. After being made alive, Jesus went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. What does that mean? Jesus, after being made alive in the spirit, being resurrected, went and preached to imprisoned spirits. This is where I'm not going to take an hour to talk about this, okay? Here's what's important. Jesus, in his suffering, identified us and came so low in order to bring us to God. Jesus not only came to us, he went to the ultimate low, to imprisoned spirits who in some mysterious way, were hanging out in prison since the days of Noah when God destroyed the world with a flood. Jesus went that low. That's how far his love goes. And then the passage concludes. 
in the flood, only a few people, only eight in all, Noah and his family, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but a pledge of a clean conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hands with angels and authorities and powers in submission to him. Amen, glory. Jesus not only went to the ultimate low, but Jesus has already ascended to the ultimate high. He is at the right hand of God. And this is what saves us and guarantees that you can someday be in eternal communion with God. Notice when Peter talks about the salvation of Noah and his family, he says they are saved through the water. Not by the water. They had to pass through the water. Similarly, we are saved through our life, through the life of baptism, but we are saved by, we are saved by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, by the blood that was shed and by the blood that has come back to life to give us life. I used to think that when I became a grown-up Christian, life would be just one spiritual high after another. In my young naivete, I thought that was possible. Just one blessing, one good thing, one victory after another. That is not how my life has gone. There have been so many great spiritual things that have happened for me, with God, with the people of God. I mean, there's a long chain of them. However, in my life, there has also been a long chain of lows, failures, frustrations, disappointments. I used to think that the Christian life meant less of the lows, more of the highs. That is not my testimony or observation for you, brothers and sisters in Christ. It is like the Christian life is always going down two parallel tracks. Victory in Jesus, suffering, disappointment, failure. I am going down both of those tracks simultaneously almost all the time. Is that anybody else's story? I mean, can I get an amen? <laughs> I'm trying to be realistic here with you, friends. When I was a really little kid, I have vague distant memories of throwing temper tantrums when I didn't get my way. That's childish, right? When you think it's supposed to be a high, but it feels like a low, so you freak out and just yell. That's childish. When I became an adolescent, the external tantrum stopped, but my powerful feelings of being angry and frustrated and disappointed, those did not stop. Now that I've been an adult for decades and grown older, I've become so well acquainted with not getting my way all the time that sometimes I'm even rarely disappointed. Amen? <laughs> this world beats you up after a while. I am so familiar with disappointment now. What matters most 
What I've learned, what God has taught me, what matters most is not getting life's circumstance to turn out my preferred way, to be one high after another. What matters most is being surrounded, accompanied, held near by the people that I love and who love me. What matters most is being held and surrounded and accompanied by God. Who you are with is far more important than how it turns out. I think that is the core message of what our Old Testament reading, our gospel reading, and what this obscure New Testament reading from 1 Peter 3 are saying. Who you are with, namely especially in the company of Jesus Christ, is far more important than how it's turning out at any given moment. God promises after the flood and the rainbow in the sky, and he promises in the empty tomb of the risen Lord. He swears by heaven and earth and the cross and the grave that he is going to be with us. We are his people. He is our savior. Jesus came to be with us in the next 40 days is about our commitment to walk every step of the way with him. Do you remember Jesus' prayer in the garden the night he was betrayed? He brought just three disciples to that darkest hour, and he simply asked, stay awake with me, watch with me, wait with me, pray with me, stay with me till the end. And of course they failed, (laughs) right? But that is what the Lord would have for us. That is still what he prays, watch with me. Wait with me, stay with me, be with me till the very end. Because if you do, people, something incredible is going to happen in our communion, in our being together. There is no high so high that Jesus has not already ascended there. There is no low, so low, that Jesus has not already descended there. There is no wilderness that you are currently walking through that hasn't been traveled by Jesus himself. In every season, through thick and thin, God's covenant promise endures, I will not destroy you. I will be with you. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you for this promise. Help us to hear it, to receive it, to embrace it, to cling to it, and to do all we can to walk with you from here till the glory of Easter morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.